I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Here we are again, got another great episode. My guest for today is Don Smith Theodore, who is a dear friend, an incredible therapist, and a really beautiful dancer. As you can imagine, the episode today is about dancers and eating disorders. Dawn is the author of the book, Too Too Thin, and she talks about the life of dancers with eating disorders and how complicated and complex it is. Dawn herself was a dancer. Dawn herself owns a dance studio and she does the incredible work of going around and trying to educate dance instructors, parents, studio owners, colleges, about some of the harmful language that is used in the dance world that can contribute to the beginning of an eating disorder. And people are really afraid to talk about this. So kudos to Dawn for bringing up a really, really hard topic. It is amazing when we think about how much perfectionism runs through the blood of dancers. And it's the same thing when somebody has an eating disorder. You'll often hear for both dancers and people with eating disorders, things that they say about themselves. I'm not good enough. I'll never be enough. It's never enough. This constant chasing for something that they feel will never be attainable So they keep doing more and more and more, whether it's restricting, purging, pushing themselves to dance longer and harder. It is, again, an incredible, the the ingredients for an eating disorder are unbelievable. On top of that, putting in that dancers are constantly in front of mirrors and they are also comparing themselves to other dancers all the time. One of the things that Don and I talk about that just breaks my heart is I asked Don, were you able to really dance, really, really dance when you were malnourished? She talks about the fact that dancers feel the music with their body, but unfortunately a dancer with anorexia nervosa or any other eating disorder is so malnourished, they can't feel anything. So it is really powerful. 
I hope you all enjoyed this episode, listening to it as much as I did recording it because it really is fascinating. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am thrilled to introduce you all to our guest this week, Don Smith Theodore. Don, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled and to let listeners know, I'm also giggling because Don and I are laughing while we're trying to record this podcast. So there's going to be, I think, some laughter in this episode this week. So Don, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, well, I'm a psychotherapist uh, in Los Angeles, and I have a private practice um, in Westwood and also in Agora Hills, both sections of Los Angeles. Um, I'm a former dancer. I had owned a dance studio. I was a flight attendant. And, um, and I worked for many years at a treatment center uh, called Montanito. And I wrote a book called Too Too Thin about dancers and eating disorders. And I do a lot of speaking um, around the world about dancers and eating disorders. So there are so many things that I want to get to in this episode, but I definitely want to start with that. So what is it? that you notice when you're working with dancers? What is a common theme, if there is? What are some words of wisdom? Because I know right now there are listeners out there. I know some of the college students that I work with. They are dancers. They're in the entertainment industry. Where do you begin with this, Don? I always like to start with um, perfectionism because I think that's a, a, a trait that runs uh, through the blood of dancers and, and also those with eating disorders. And so, um, and I like to talk about the fact that there is a line where, you know, you're striving to be the best dancer you can possibly be, whether that's about your turnout or the number of turns or your extension or your feet. And you're always working to be the best that you can be. But there's a lot that you spend your life looking in the mirror, critiquing yourself. And then there's a place where the, the desire to improve yourself becomes problematic. And I call it chasing the rainbow because um, I feel like chasing the rainbow is like always going and never obtaining. And there is no such thing as perfectionism. We are humans and we do the best that we can do, um, but we can strive to be the best that we can be, but there is no such thing as perfectionism. So that's usually a place that I start because I feel like it's a place where people begin to have problems, you know, and, uh, you know, pushing themselves and, um, and don't know when they've gotten into a dangerous area. So I know this is sort of leaping to uh, this or taking a big leap with this question, but I've had guests on the podcast before where we talk about what happens 
if you truly love something, you're passionate, you're good at it, you're, you want to have a career in it, and it's killing you. How do you work with that, Dawn? Because I can imagine some dancers are petrified and don't want to go get help because it may be the advice. You cannot do this anymore. And I have to imagine there are people that can do it, but they need a lot of support around it. So any thoughts about that or how it impacted you? Well, it's interesting as you say that, I'm thinking, you know, I grew up in my my mother's dance studio. So I grew up from the time I was a little girl dancing, spending my life looking in the mirror. And I developed anorexia at 15. So I always tell people that I, that dancing was a contributor to my eating disorder, but it wasn't the sole cause of my eating disorder. And so But I also tell people it was the reason I got better. And it was, you know, so I I always believe that you have to have um, a passion that drives you to want to get better. And um, I recently did a uh, dance class at a treatment center. And and part of what it is, is about, there was a dancer in the dance class and she at the very end, I always talk about how did it impact you because there's people in there that have never danced. And then there was somebody who wants to be a professional dancer. And the people who have never danced will say, I never thought about my eating disorder for that time. That's the goal. The person who wanted to dance um, was like, this makes me want to get better. And this reminds me why I want to get better. And I'm a believer. I want to return to dancers or athletes uh, back to their passion. And so I'm a believer that you can go back, um, but you're going to need a lot of support and it's going to need to be done depending on how severe the eating disorder is going to be need to be done in a methodical way. So would you say for your experience that your biggest motivator was actual was dance or because I think it's interesting you're right there's never one thing that goes into an eating disorder there are as we know experiences personality traits environmental stressors things like that so what starts out as something really good can flip into something disordered so was dancing that was really good for you that you ended up flipping into anorexia, is that also what became your biggest motivator for recovery and how? I think it became a motivator uh, because I wanted I wanted to dance professionally. I also think people, you know, became a motivator. And I'm a big believer that uh, if, you know, your relationships improve, so does your food. And I was so weird with food and I didn't want to be weird with food. So I would eat, you know, with certain people. I mean, it's like, certainly wouldn't do it with my family, but I got a boyfriend and I didn't want to be weird with him. So I ate food that I would never have eaten uh, so that I could seem normal. And that helped. But then dancing was absolutely a motivator because I wanted to be able to dance. Um, 
and I wanted to be able to go to auditions and I was way too sick. So, um, so yeah, you know, and I just believe that it can be turned around to be, yes, it is something that causes you to go down a bad path, but it can also be turned around and moved in the right direction. And I always say that, you know, nobody chooses an eating disorder, but recovery is a choice. Absolutely. And I got to be honest with you. I know that clients get really defensive when I say that to them, or they get really angry. And then as they move through the recovery process, they revisit it with me and they say, you're right. I didn't choose to have an eating disorder, Karen, but I do choose how I want to navigate through life and whether or not I'm going to stay in the eating disorder. It's, it's such a funny expression. It's a very, it, for some reason, like I said, it's something that with a lot of my newer clients, they just, their perception of that word choice is just, it's, I don't know. I just, I didn't mean to harp so much on that word, but it was just interesting the way you said it. I call it the fork in the road. You know, it's like, I always say it's the fork in the road and each choice, whether it's what meal you're going to eat, which snack, if you're going to exercise, if you're going to throw up, whatever that is, it's like, you're either choosing to go towards life or you're choosing to go towards your eating disorder. And that road towards your eating disorder is a dead end street. And the one towards life, you may not know, which becomes so scary because you don't know what life is going to hold for you. But, but, you know, if you look at options of things that you can do, and if you're a dancer, it's like, that's one of them. You know, you have to believe that that's something that you can do. Well, I'm going to ask a question just to someone who's very naive to the world of dancing. How do, or how does it get played out with weight goals. I and and again please hear me Dom when I say I am very naive to the world of dancing. I know I've been with you at some talks with some ballet companies and whatnot. It always fascinates me. But there is a stigma about a certain weight for especially a ballet dancer. Or am I thinking too much about this or what what are your thoughts about it? I think it's changing. Um it's one of the reasons that I like speaking to young dancers and to dance educators, because we need to start with the education of, of teachers, choreographers, and parents. So they're not pushing this idea of the ideal body, you know? And so I think that with dancers, um, especially ballet dancers, there is this pressure to look a certain way and to be a certain way. I think somebody who's really helped that is Misty Copeland. She has a beautiful body, but it is not your typical ballet body. And, um, and so I think we're moving more towards athletic, um, you know, which is great. And, you know, one of the things that I always try to tell dancers, because, you know, maybe you don't have the perfect body for dance for being in ballet but there's some place for you in the dance world somewhere and you know I I have always remembered this and I write about it in my book about this little girl that I had in dancing school and she went off to 
um, and she was young. She was like maybe 10. And she went off to a summer intensive for ballet. And she went off with a friend from both from my studio. And one got put in level four and one got put in level one. The one that got put in level four was had more of the perfect body. And the one that got put in level one didn't have the perfect ballet body. And she recognized it. And she came home from that summer and said to her mother, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to make it in the ballet world because I don't think they like my body. And, you know, for that to happen at 10 years old, and it did impact this this particular dancer because, um, you know, she was a good all-round dancer in all forms of dance, Not, but she wanted to be a ballerina. And, um, and so... Um, it really changed the course of, I think, you know, so that's what I don't want to have happen is that people at that young of an age are see that they're, they're, they're put in a certain level because of the size of their body. Cause at 10, our bodies can are change. I have a story of a client. I worked with a client a few years back, uh, very severe anorexia nervosa, incredibly focused on her stomach, had to have her stomach as, as concave as possible. Is that the right word? Concave? (laughs) You know, I say things all the time and I'm always like, did I say that correctly? And one of the things that we talked about is when she was four years old. So now a four-year-old's body Anybody is perfect, but a four-year-old. And she was in ballet class and the ballet instructor said, suck in your belly. You look like you swallowed a watermelon. Oh. And she said, I've been holding in my stomach since I was four years old. And I worked with this woman when she was in her 20s. All I can imagine is this beautiful little spirit in a ballet outfit just wanting to be in her body and being shamed at four years old. I know, and you had spoken, you just spoke of it. Um, on your website, you do talk about dance workshops and say a little bit about them because it does look like they are to educators, choreographers. Like, what is it that you share with them? I work with a, a dietitian who was also a former dancer. Um, and uh, we speak about, so she does the nutrition part and I do the, if you want to call it psychological part, but more it's talking about for young, for young dancers. And, and when we go into dance studios or ballet companies, if it's young dancers, we want to talk about how to be a healthy dancer, not how, how to prevent eating disorders, but to parents and dance educators and teachers, I want to talk about how to prevent eating disorders so they know what to look for and, um, you know, what's, um, what's problematic, uh, what, uh, we did a talk at IADAMS, which is the International Association of Dance, Medicine, and Science, about the language of eating disorders. And I'm actually writing an article about it for their newsletter in September. But um, the language that we use 
with dancers makes a huge difference. Clearly what you're just talking about and, um, you know, how you correct someone uh, is going to make a huge difference uh, uh, because somebody, and you know, that somebody who has an eating disorder is going to hear it in a completely different way than somebody who doesn't hear have an eating disorder. And, um, and maybe they don't have an eating disorder now, but maybe that's something that sticks in their brain for, however long, you know, from four years old. So, but with dancers, I want them to learn how to, you know, uh, balance life and dance. Um, I want them to know, understand about perfectionism uh, and the pitfalls of perfectionism. I want them to learn how to uh, sleep in the, you know, get enough sleep. How do they still, how do they get support if they need it? Um, how to audition, how to accept rejection. Um, all of those things are such an important part for dancers, whether or not they have an eating disorder. Um, but if they have an eating disorder, it's going to just cause that many more problems. And then we open it up to questions and answers and eating disorders usually come up. Uh, but I don't want to promote uh, eating disorders to people who have not thought of them. How is it received by the professionals, not the dancers, but by the professionals, the directors, the choreographers, things like that? I may have a misperception, so correct me if I'm wrong, but a few years back, Don, you and I did give a talk. Well, you gave the talk. I was I was just your sidekick um, at a school. And for some reason, I remember not getting a lot of positive responses, sort of like, well, this is their life. And this is kind of, if they want to be a dancer, this is how it's going to be. So I can't remember if I, if my memory is correct on that, but how is it received? Um, well, I wish it was received better um, because then I'd be speaking all over all the time. But people are afraid of the subject. Uh, they are afraid to talk about dancers and eating disorders. And um, one of the places that I've really wanted to talk is at dance conventions because at a dance convention, you have dancers, you have parents, and you have teachers. And you know, we could talk to all three and we have only spoken at one dance convention and it was only to the teachers and it was attended by very few. So, um, it, it, and there are many dance educators where I really send out things all the time, trying to educate them. And it's not a lot of response. Now I have to say that, you know, she and I've done a lot of speaking, um, at like ballet schools. And so um, that's been positive. Uh, and we spoke at a university. So, you know, it's a little bit at a time. It's like being, a, being on the ground floor of something. It's why I wrote my book. There was nothing out there about dancers and eating disorders. And I felt like I was the dancer. I had owned a dance studio. You know, I had danced professionally. I was a therapist and I was recovering from an eating disorder. So I could cover the gamut with all areas and understand it from all perspectives. I want to 
bring it, speaking of your experience, a little bit back to you. I know we're speaking very much about the dance world, but going back to your experience, so how did you navigate through this world of dance? What was the most difficult thought for you to let go of, things such as that? Well, I think one of the most difficult things to let go of is I'm not good enough or it's never enough, you know, um, which is a theme that runs through eating disorders, but it also runs through dancers. And, um, you know, we talk about the critical mind or the eating disorder mind. Um, you know, it was really hard for me because I would never think that I was good enough at an audition or um, I would never in class you know, if a teacher didn't talk to me or look at me, uh, I mean, it's just that critical thought of also thinking that person's better than me, that, you know, it, and how we tell clients to focus on yourself, you know, and as a dancer, that's really hard to do because you're looking in the mirror and you're not only seeing yourself, but you're seeing all these other dancers around you. And then you're like, I'm not good enough. This isn't, you know, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to make this. So that was a really, really hard thing for me to overcome. And it's something that, you know, look, I'm recovered from my eating disorder. Uh, but I think it's a, I think it's a concept that comes up in other areas of our life. And we always have to, I mean, I always have to push at myself about that. And so, um, you know, uh, and and dancers are competitive and so are people with eating disorders you know and that competition with yourself and others can be devastating i think it's a really interesting or good point which is it's it's pretty universal that people experience either um am i good enough um Am I an imposter? Uh, low self-esteem. And by the way, not always. I'm not saying that everybody's walking around like this, but it, these are universal feelings that a lot of people at some point in their life experience, um, which is why it's so interesting because people, when they're recovered from their eating disorder, they still have those qualities and those traits that, by the way, those are the things that pushed you into the eating disorder, pushed me into my eating disorder. And so first of all, that's one of the reasons why recovery takes so long because after the behaviors are, are um, diminished, I had to look at all of these, like my low self-esteem, my imposter syndrome, all of these things. But there was always going to be a part of me that's like that. And that's not always a bad thing. I just needed to learn how to manage it. I needed to learn how to live in the world without criticizing myself for some of these traits that I have. And that's what I was thinking of when you said, yeah, I still struggle with some of these things. It's in perspective, though, now. Absolutely. You know, it's it's like body image. You know, clients will ask me, well, do you ever think about your body well of course I think about my body I, I I love my body and I want to take care of my body there are days that I'm not thrilled with it you know and then I look and then I have to stop and think you know oh but she liked it yesterday you know and so I I always have to ask 
myself, okay, what's going on? And this is what I tell clients all the time. What's going on when you had a good day yesterday, but you don't have a good day today? What changed, you know? And it's usually something's going on in somebody's life. And for me, it's the same thing. It's usually something's going on in my life. And what I'm looking at is my body. And it's not, it's the same. It's been the same for years, you know? And, and that's the thing is that I think is one of the most important parts of recovery is trust. You know, trust in yourself, trust in your body, trust, um, you know, trust that your body knows what to do with the food. And, you know, trust is such an important trust of others. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's not a small thing, especially trust in self. Well, I think both trust in self and trust in others. Trust that others are not going to judge you, criticize you, hurt you, especially going back to say the client I was talking about, if even at four years old, your body is being judged and being judged in a group of people. It is really hard to, and that hurts your soul, right? Like I imagine this four-year-old, her heart hurting. So who wants that, right? I will do anything possible to not feel this pain again. So trusting others can be very, very difficult. Well, and also you learning to use your voice, because I think people use their eating disorder instead of their voice. And that was true for me was that I didn't have a voice, you know, and I was very quiet. I was very shy. Um, I had a very extroverted mother. And so I had to learn how to use my voice. And once I learned how to use my voice, I didn't need my behaviors anymore. You know, I learned how to speak up for myself. And that's such an important part of of healing i learned that i could have being upset with someone and talk to them about it versus just shut down and go inside myself and my, i'm sorry for listeners who, do, who can't see this i'm like biting my tongue right now and don can tell i want to say something <laughs> <laughs> so and i didn't mean to interrupt but do you know what I like? I'm feeling this in my entire body right now. So if you're saying you needed to learn how to use your voice, I would imagine, or I'm wondering if your natural instinct to express yourself was through dance. And so dance was your expression, your voice, your release. And then if that is being judged, how much that impacts your dance and then your voice. I, I don't know if I just sort of went in a tangent, but I just kept thinking, wow, for somebody who was quiet, I bet you used your body as a way of expression, but then you also use the eating disorder as a way of expression. So I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, and, and what I always say to dancers is that you got to get out of your brain. You know, we need our brain to remember choreography, but we need our heart to be able to express the emotion of dance. And it's the same with healing from an eating disorder. The elevator has to stop at all the 
at all the floors. And mine only stopped on the top floor at the penthouse in the brain. And, you know, because I cut everything else off. Um, and so I feel like the, the being able to actually feel how you f- feel and listen to how you feel and then be able to talk about how you feel is such an important part uh, of recovery. Um, and it's also an important part of, of being a dancer, is being able to actually express your emotions or express your emotions through the music, you know, and through the choreography. So, yes, it's like they, the two have to work together. And when you're starving yourself, your brain's not working and you don't feel anything. What was it like being a dancer with such a malnourished body. Now, I'm a little nervous asking this because I'm imagining some people that are like, well, I don't feel any different. I feel even better when I dance when I'm malnourished. So I don't want that to be an indicator, but I'm just trying to imagine what is it like expressing yourself through dance when your body is starving for nourishment? I think it's really hard. You know, um, it was a long time ago. But, um, but I think it's really hard. And here's why is that you can't feel, you know, not, not only is your body not working at its optimum. And, you know, there is that part when you first start restricting and starving that there's this euphoric feeling, but it doesn't last. And it doesn't, you know, and when you get to such a low weight, it's really hard. You're tired and you, you don't feel well and your brain's not working. So you're not operating at a hundred percent capacity. And, um, so, and, and you also have to be worried about, you know, having a stress fracture or having some type of broken bone. And, um, so it's not fun and it's, so much better to dance when you have when you fueled your body. Yes. Well, you also said, and and I know from my own experience, you're right. You don't feel, and so how are you supposed to be your best self as a dancer, which is showing feelings through movement, if you cannot feel? It, it's difficult, you know. It's. <laughs> It's difficult. I don't know what else to say. It's like, it, that's the whole piece of it is that it's, you can go through the most, the motions, but here's the thing. Most people who are sitting in the audience don't know, you know, all the moves of dance and they don't know, you know, if you've done a triple pirouette, they're not paying attention to that. But what they do notice is, the emotional and and they're paying attention to the the story and you tell the story through your body and so and if you can't feel that that's a huge disadvantage i also remember god my my niece is 25 26 when my niece was very young and she is a wonderful dancer and my mom and I took her you know it was really fun like grandma aunt niece the three of us we took her to the nutcracker and dawn I was horrified I wanted to cover my niece's eyes and say 
no, 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 because the dancers, I, I, it almost felt egregious that they let dancers so, so malnourished up on stage. I, I was horrified. And it's, it's tough because you bring these little boys, little girls to these beautiful shows with beautiful costumes and all the lights and all this and the applause and they are severely underweight it is a very difficult how do you even have you ever had mothers or fathers say what do I say to my son or daughter when they go to the ballet and see this and I by the way, I also want to be very clear. I don't mean to demonize or villainize the ballet world. So I, I apologize if it is coming out that way. These are just some of my experiences. So I want to be very clear about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I love to take kids. When I had my dance studio, I always took them to see performances. Um, but I also think my students were really aware of what I did. You know, because I not only had my dancing school, but I was also a therapist working at a treatment center for eating disorders. And so they were very aware. So we never, you know, it's like I never really had to talk about it because we kind of lived it in our studio. I had two incidences of issues with young, young dancers, both of which parents came to me um, and I talked to the kids and and in one instance, they um, didn't really listen. And in the other, and the, but the little girl got better. And in the other instance, the, you know, I was able to refer to a therapist. But yes, I think, you know, um, I try not to talk about people's bodies, you know, because with dancers, because I want to see what they're going to say to me, you know, um, and then I can talk about it, but I don't want to point it out and say anything because um, I, I don't want to bring it to their attention. It's kind of like not talking to dancers about eating disorders unless they ask me because I don't want, I don't want to promote eating disorders. You know, I want to prevent them. And um, which is why I think it has to start with parents and teachers. Do you see a lot of dancers in your private practice? Are you are you getting inundated? Yeah. See a lot of dancers um, and young, usually young dancers, uh, like 14 to 20, something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's sad. You know, it's sad. But I've also seen dancers be able to return to dancing and be fine. You know, I'm actually working with a dancer right now who's 16, who goes to a high school for performing arts. And the treatment center that she was at was like, I don't think she can go back to dancing, you know. And um, and I was like, no, I actually think she needs to go back to dancing because she needs something to give her the motivation to want to recover. And, you know, it's a fine line because not everybody will agree with me. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it's like returning to dancers to, um, dance slowly, you know, having a contract, things like that. If they lose so much weight, then they can't dance or they can only have so many classes and, you know, it needs to be worked out based on the individual dancer. But, um, 
you know, it, it is something that I believe needs to be used to as the carrot to, especially if that's really what they want to do. Well, and I think that's the most important part that there's a contract involved. There's only a certain number of dance classes they can take per week, things like that. Like you don't just say, okay, go back. There's, there's a, there's a, you titrate them up and it's monitored very closely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So I feel like that's why working with the team, the dietitian, the doctor is such an important piece. Um, and it's funny because a uh, dietitian I work with is in New York and, uh, and we've shared clients because I'm licensed in New York. And um, so it's been, you know, it's fun when I can work with her because she understands that piece of it. And um, so I like that. Can you share with listeners a little bit about the book, Too Too Thin? I think it's phenomenal. So say a little bit about it. Well, I wrote the book because I wanted there to be something out there for dancers. Um, and to me, I wrote it as a, uh, it could be preventative for somebody who doesn't have an eating disorder, uh, but is a dancer, or it can be used as something uh, for somebody who has an eating disorder and how to get better. And it's easy reading. It's, you know, it talks about, and I try to put it into dance terms, develop pay uh, for the development of an eating disorder. And, um, but there's, you know, a part of dear mom and dad letter to talk about dancers. There's the part about nutrition that I consulted with multiple dietitians on. Um, there's a, there's a chapter on it's never enough. There's a chapter on perfectionism. So it really touches on all the things that we're talking about and how, um, you know, what would be helpful to dancers so that they don't get caught in traps like perfectionism. Was there any part of the book that was triggering for you as you were writing it? No, no, it was really, uh, uh, was really a passion project. You know, I talk about my own uh, journey to recovery in the beginning of the book, but the book is not about me. It's about, it's really about other dancers and wanting to spread the word because I think there's, there's not information out there that's not always good for dancers. And so I wanted there to be something out there that is positive and and gives resources and things like that so that dancers know where to go. You were saying resources. So what are what are some of the resources? What are some of your favorite resources? The organization that I speak at a lot um, is called IADAMS. It's International Association of Dance, Medicine, and Science. And, it, and it's a good resource because it has... You know, it's really doctors, physical therapists, therapists, dietitians, and a lot of times dancers will come, but they, they, and they're doing more education on eating disorders. So uh, Monica Seigel and I have spoken um, at, well, this will be the third conference, one in Helsinki, one in Montreal, and this year it's virtual. I think that's a good resource. I refer people to ED Referral. 
you know, because it's like, it's a good referral source for therapists. And especially if you live in a not so populated area to find treatment that's near you. Um, trying to think of some of the other resources that are in the, in the back of the book. I think they're, I don't remember actually right now off the top of my head. Uh, so I think what you're saying is that listeners need to read the book. Buy the book. <laughs> yeah. Too, too thin. You know, I was just going to say that was the other thing is that I came up with the name and I didn't want somebody else to take it. So that, that, that was a motivator for me to get it written. And I had some, I sent it to somebody in the very beginning who said to me, Oh, make that the name of a chapter. And I'm thinking, no. And there's what, there's where you have to trust your own instinct because I was like, no, that's not the name of a chapter. That's the name of the book. Um, it probably took me two years to write and a lot of edits. And, um, but yeah, now I'm working on my second book. Say a little bit about it. Oh, the second book is about me. It's a memoir and it's about my relationship with my mother and, um, and how it impacted me throughout my life. And, um, so, you know, I loved my mom. I was an only child. Um, and also our, the difficult, the difficulties in a mother daughter relationship. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Everyone. <laughs> I love my mother more than anyone in this earth, but the mother daughter relationship. Well, and the thing, I, I think it's not even, you know, mothers get a bad rap with eating disorders. Um, and it's, that's such a small part of the book, but you know, it's like, I just think mothers and daughters in general have such an interesting relationship. And, um, and so my thought about it is, is that everybody has a mother, you know? So yeah, the mother daughter relationship is actually very sacred to me. And I think my mom and I grew together um, as we both matured. And now it's fun. You know, now we're just like, I mean, she is, I mean, you've, you've, you've met Sylvia, haven't you? For, for listeners, we'll talk a little bit about my mother, but I mean, she is truly one of my best friends. Um, and I have often said my family was part of my eating disorder, but my family was also a huge part of my recovery process. And I know that the day I got diagnosed, my parents were sitting in the lobby or in the waiting room at the hospital with their heads down in shame, almost as if like the school principal was just about to come out and reprimand them. And that's one of the reasons why I loved doing family work so much, because it's not about blaming the family system. But it is about saying, okay, what are some of the things in the family system that did go into the eating disorder? And by the way, it was also my personality trait, Dawn. It wasn't just my family did things to me. It was, I have a, still to this day, a very sensitive personality trait. My, I'm a little sensitive being. And there were things that went on that didn't affect my brothers, but it affected me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. You know, it, that's why I love doing family work. Um, when I first got sick, you'll, you'll appreciate this. When I first got sick, my mom took me. So they didn't, 
What? I, I read this. I know exactly what you're going to say, because I don't know if you remember this, but you wrote it in your paperwork. Took you to a doctor, right? Is that what you were going to talk about? Yes. My, it took me, took me to the doctor who had delivered me because he was a gynecologist and I had stopped having my period. And he said to my mom and to me, I needed to be beat over the head with a baseball bat and uh, some sense knocked into me. Um, so that was the beginning of my, my eating disorder. And so, you know, clearly I thought it was my fault. Then I took my mom to a therapist um, because I thought we needed to go to therapy. And she got up and said, she's the one with the problem, not me, and left the room. So it's, it's actually why I really love family work is because I think it's such an important part and much like you. And so I, I'm never about blaming the family. I'm about how do we move forward? It's it's and there is a lot of shame that goes along with have having a child who has an eating disorder. And I think it was, you know, I was sick at a time when there were no treatment centers and they didn't really know what to do with me. And my poor kind general practitioner in my town would have me come in every week and be weighed. And he would tell my mom, you know, yeah, she has anorexia nervosa. I don't really know what to do with her. Um, and, but they would just make sure that my weight wasn't going down any further. So consequently, it took me a lot longer to get better, you know, because nobody really knew what to do with me. And, um, and I would, you know, it was very much an up and down road. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I find so interesting about doing the podcast is, you know, I am now speaking with with many many people that are roughly my age and and I'm 50 and there were no treatment centers for me either and it, it's it's interesting i'm wondering if maybe that's why a lot of us went into the field to sort of for like a corrective experience and to say this is how clients need to be supported i i also didn't have any uh, there were no residential programs and my therapist was not an eating disorder specialist. I don't think they had them 30 years ago. Nope, neither was mine. And uh, here's the thing. I really think I never was around other eating disorder people. You know, it's like I never really had an experience with other eating disorder clients. I did. So I, when I was in graduate school, I took an eating disorder class and, you know, I started hearing all these things. I was like, oh, you know, and it, you know, I'm recovered. I think I'm fine. And I actually didn't want to work with eating disorders. I had been, my, my dance partner had died of AIDS and I wanted to work with AIDS patients. And this is in the nineties. You know, that's what I was planning to do. And there was a girl sitting next to me in my class that said, oh, you live out in Calabasas. You should go look up Carolyn Costin. And, um, and so that's what, you know, so then I went to Montanito and that was the first experience I'd had with other clients. And I always tell her that, you know, it's like, I think that was the final, it wasn't like I wasn't recovered, but that was the final healing for me because I got to hear things that I realized I wasn't so weird, you know, that there were other people out there like me that thought like me 
you know, I, I, I always say that was kind of the end of my, that was the, that was the final healing place for me. And Montanito was such a sacred place. Um, just that house was so sacred that it was very healing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us that worked at Montanito had that exact experience. So I, I just want to say, yes, I, I felt that as well. So Don, as much as I hate to do this, we are going to have to wind the podcast down. I do have one more question for you, but before I ask, is there anything that you'd like to say, anything that I didn't ask? No, I think we covered a lot. Um, and this was so much fun. Don, I love you. <laughs> to be with my friend. I love you too, to be with my friend. And this is what recovery is about. And I haven't seen you in a couple of years, but it's like, it's like a, no time has passed. Right. Yes. And, and again, as I was saying at the very beginning, listeners, none of you saw it, but Don was sort of giggling, laughing at me. I'm going to say at Don, I'm not going to say with me. Don was kind of laughing at me because we've known each other for years and she's never seen me in this role. So as I was like, good afternoon, everybody, Don started laughing. So I started laughing. So I have to, I have to be careful with, you know, having all my friends on this podcast. It, you know, makes me chuckle. So, Don, thank you. What I do want to ask, though, before we end, is if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? <laughs> it would say, Dawn was here and she lived her life to the fullest. She never let a, a minute go by without doing something that she loved to do. Beautiful. Beautiful. Dawn, again, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being a guest on this podcast and for being a friend in my life. Thank you, Karen. I, I really value our relationship and our friendship. And thank you for having me. It's been fun. I know. We have a good time, don't we? All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of Recovery Bites Real Talk with recovered professionals. I will look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.